this morning, I'm going to give the first of nine messages, which are all going to be focused on really one thing, which is how to be a disciple of Jesus, how to be a follower of his who is growing in faith, how to be a person who's putting down roots into God's love and growing there, growing to be someone who has a unique part in God's mission together. And that's what we're starting today. I want you to look at the vision of the church that you're in right now. Uh, To build up disciples who invite and inspire others to love and serve Jesus together. This is the vision that the staff and elders of this church together have discerned. When we look down the road, we think what God wants to do with this church is to grow people who follow him, to build up disciples. And to do that in a way that others are invited and also inspired by what they see, not to be like those people, but rather to love and serve Jesus together. That's what we believe God has this church in place for, to to grow, for, for people to grow as followers. The last word of that vision statement together is really what we're going to be focusing on in these next two months. And, and there's a reason for that, and it's, it's this, that only, only with one another are we actually able to grow as followers of Jesus. Uh, we need one another to be the church which Jesus intends, not only because having each other makes it easier, which it surely does, but because being a solitary Christian without any relationships with others who are following Jesus in the community of faith is actually an impossibility. By God's design, we need each other in order to follow Jesus. I want you to think back to a time where your faith was particularly vital. When you found yourself growing as a follower more than any other time or where you felt God's closeness and you were absolutely certain of his love. Uh, Some season where discipleship was very vibrant for you. Can you picture a time like that? If you can't, because you've never had that, let's hope that in 2020, you have that. Let's hope that here's the place where that begins to happen. But if you have that, I'm willing to bet that the distinguishing feature in every season of life where faith was real for you came down to having relationships with other people who are also following Jesus with you. That it was the friends in faith that God had given you that brought your discipleship to life in a brand new way. It was his encouragement uh, to follow Jesus that made God's nearness plain. It was her influence that kept you going when you wanted to give up. It was her way of challenging you to be more mature that increased your faith or his way of serving that inspired you to want to serve Jesus. His prayers for you held you up. Her way of building you up in faith gave you the strength not to throw in the towel. The fact that he chose to forgive and welcome you made you know that God was real. This is how it's been for every person that has a sincere faith that I've known, and I've known a lot of people. And it's also how it's been for me as a Christian. Uh, It's not been the books that I've read, and I've read a lot of good books. It's not been the sermons that I've listened to, and I've listened to more sermons than you have, I guarantee you. It's not the resolutions that I've tried to complete on my own. Instead, at every season where my discipleship really was thriving, it was the relationships that God had given me with other disciples. Try to remember if you can. Uh, For me, it was Blaine. And it was Joe. It was Reed. It was 
Shelly, and then it was Betty, and then it was Emily. Uh, it was Tony, and it was Adam, and it was Vito. It was the people that God has given me at each season in my life, and I could go on, that have made it so that my faith grows. That's how it is for all people who seek to follow Jesus because we need one another in order to be his disciples. By God's design, that's how it works. It's a fact which is especially plain in the language of discipleship which we find in the Bible. Here is where we receive our guidance for what it means to be a follower of Jesus, for what it means to be one of God's people. And the fact of the matter is when one looks at the scriptures closely, it's plain that first of all, what we have here was addressed never to an individual, but always to groups of people. It's easier to see that in, uh, in the original languages than it is in English. As you may know, the second person pronoun in English is the same in its singular and its plural form. You is what I would say to one person or to a group of people if I was addressing them. There's one guy who told me he loves when I talk about grammar, and he's supposed to be in the second service. I don't see him here, but he would be saying amen right now. <laughs> in Greek and Hebrew, it's not like that. There's a difference between the plural and singular pronouns so that when the Bible addresses a group and says you, in English, it looks the same to us as when an individual is addressed. And that can mislead us into thinking that the guidance that's given here can be received by one person all by herself or all by himself, when in fact, that's not actually the case. And sometimes the difference is extremely meaningful. Here's one passage that illustrates my point. Uh, many of you will have heard this beautiful promise, for I know the plans I have for you. Do some of you know this? Says the Lord. What does it say next? P plans for your good, prosper, well-being, depends on which version you read, right? It depends on which version is embroidered in your kitchen hanging on the wall. But this is the one that Christians are most likely to have there. But what happens is we see that and we think, what a wonderful thing that God would say that to me personally, that he has plans for little old me. But listen now, that passage originally was not addressed to an individual, but it was addressed to the people of God, the people of Israel. Jeremiah 29 is where the prophet talks to a large group of people, Israel, who are thinking God has no more purpose for his people. Look at how bad we're doing altogether. And that promise, which says, no, I still have a plan for you altogether, cannot be received by an individual. It can only be received by the person who's ready to say, I guess I shouldn't give up on this group of people yet because God has a plan for us. Do you see the difference? And so much of what's in the Bible, like that, is addressed not to individuals, but rather to people together. And that matters, especially when we come to the Bible and say, how can I be a follower of Jesus? How can I be a disciple? How can I have a relationship with him that feels like it's really alive? The answer comes down to the necessity of having with other people who are also trying to follow Jesus, real relationships, the kind that enable us to actually do what Jesus said we should do. There's a linguistic clue in the New Testament that makes our need for one another absolutely obvious. If you go searching in the Bible for instructions on how to follow Jesus, what you will find is that nearly every imperative that you come across is followed by the reflexive pronoun, one another. That is, the way that Jesus teaches people that they're meant to be depends necessarily on other people being there with them so that they can obey him together. Let me give you some examples. The Bible says this, do good to one another. 
It says, be kind and compassionate to one another. Be subject to one another. Confess your sins to one another. Be hospitable to one another. Have fellowship, comfort, live in harmony with, outdo every one of them, one another. There are literally dozens like this in the New Testament. And it's very obvious when you think about it that no one can do any of these by themselves. Do you see it? This is what it means. And this is completely concrete. This is not abstract. This is not just one more thing for you to think about today, but it's guidance for you if you want to grow as a follower of Jesus. You cannot do that by yourself. It's impossible. You can only grow as a discipler with the other people who are in the one another. And, And what we're going to do together, because I want you to grow as followers, I want us to grow as followers of Jesus, what we're going to do today and in the eight weeks that are Uh, going to follow is each week settle in on one single one another statement in order to learn practically how to follow Jesus together. That's what God wants of and for us. This morning, we're going to begin with the most comprehensive one another statement in the New Testament. And I hope for those of you who have been following Jesus for any time at all, it's not a surprise to know that if we had to select one picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus, the most comprehensive, the one that holds them all together, it's this one, love one another. Because love is what holds it all together. Jesus gave his most basic guidance about how to be a disciple, that they should love one another, on his very last day with his followers. I want you to imagine this. For three years, he was with these men and women who came along with him for three full years. And on the very last day, He'd been with them for more than a thousand days. On the last day, he sat with them and gave them a new commandment. You can imagine that if you'd been teaching a group for that long, you would make sure that you were very, very clear on your last lesson to give them what mattered most. And Jesus did that. And it's recorded in John chapter 13, verse 34. And I want you to see it with me now. We're gonna spend some time here. Jesus said to them, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. Okay, there you see that linguistic clue, the reflexive pronoun one another, twice in a single sentence. No one can follow Jesus' guidance here alone, but only with others who are also seeking to follow Jesus together. Only as a disciple loves her fellow disciples and allows them to love her back can she obey Jesus' commandment. Do you see that? And if she will, then look at what Jesus promises. This is verse 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Take take your time here. Jesus means to say, every person who sees the way that you treat each other will know that you are with one another in this way because you follow me. That's the reason what they'll see is that you love one another because that's how followers of mine are distinct. This is the last bedrock bit of teaching from Jesus to these followers. And what he's telling them is that anyone who wants to come after me will love the others who are also coming after me. This is how to be a disciple. If you want to start, and you should want this at every new season of your life, to be a disciple of Jesus, Here is the ground that you should stand on first. It is to love the others around you. Now, in order to leave no ambiguity about what that would look like, because we do use the word 
love in many and various ways, don't we? Have you ever said, I love a bacon cheeseburger from Wendy's? I do that routinely. (laughs) But to leave no ambiguity about what love Jesus means here, Notice again in 34 how he qualified that statement. He says this, just as I have loved you. And that is he told them, in the way that I have treated you, that's how you have to love one another. And that would have been completely clear to them because of what just happened. And this we don't see when we just look at verse 34. But if you take in to consideration what happened earlier on that very evening when he taught them this, you'll see what love actually looks like. And this is what I want to do with you this morning. It is to start our consideration of how to be disciples, of how to follow Jesus in relationship to one another by seeing what love looks like Jesus' way. Okay, the start of chapter 13 in John's gospel sets the scene into which Jesus spoke this word of love. Look at it with me. In verse one, the narrator tells us, now, before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. That's the narrator's way of saying, what I'm going to show you next happened when Jesus was aware of the fact that this was his last day. He knew it, so it's an important lesson. And it's before the festival of the Passover. The Passover is the time when God's people, the Israelites, remembered God's miraculous deliverance of his people from Egypt. And every year they came into the city of Jerusalem to remember it all together. And it's the eve of the Passover when this happens, which means all over the city of Jerusalem, listen to this, religious people are making preparations to celebrate the Passover meal. They're going to to acquire the Paschal lamb for sacrifice, the lamb whose blood was put on the doorposts of the homes so that the angel of death would pass over and God's people could live and be freed. And it's on that evening, get this, when Jesus goes into that city knowing that he's going to die. When everyone in the city is gathering their own lambs for the sacrifice. If you know a good deal about Jesus' identity, you'll know that he was called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Can you see the symbolism that's in Jesus' mind and in the eyes of anyone whose eyes are open to see what's happening at this meal? Can you see it? So here Jesus comes with his friends on that holy moment. Now you must use your imagination here. I want you to. They're all sitting together for this meal. And they sit In this room, it's just them and and their master Jesus. As they all take their places around the table, everything is set. But over there in the corner, there's a jar of water, which is for the rites of purification. Beside that jar of water, there's a basin that at this moment is empty. And beside that basin is a towel. And when they look at it, all of the disciples in that room know that that towel is supposed to be wrapped around the waist of a slave. Because a slave is responsible before they they eat this meal together, for washing the dirt off of their feet, which is built up as they've traveled from where they were to this holy moment. And as they sit there and look, they know, all of them, they know that, well, someone has to get up and wash our feet because they think that there's no slave in the room right now. And and we have to imagine this, but I think it's fair to imagine. Each one of them is thinking, someone's got to get up and do this, but it's not going to be me. Right? It has to be someone lower than I am. And the reason we know that they're thinking this is because they're real people, and that's what every one of us would be feeling. We would be thinking someone's got to get up, especially to wash Jesus' feet. Now, 
We have to speculate what's in the minds of the disciples, but John actually goes out of his way to tell us what Jesus is thinking in this moment, and it's in verse three. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, those two things, reiterating that he knows this is his last meal, he's gonna go back to God, and that the Father had put all things into his hands. You know what that means? Jesus is thinking, I have all authority because God the Father has put it into my hands. And so as he looks around the table, he's thinking, I am the highest one at the table. And with that in his mind, this is what he does. And please understand, this is what love looks like. And I can say that with confidence. I I, I skipped a bit here. I want to go back to the second half of verse 1. There John tells us, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That phrase, to the end, in Greek, doesn't mean chronologically the last thing. It means completely, totally, or perfectly. If you have a continuum, and this is no love at all, and this is complete and perfect total love all the way here at this end, John's saying this is what love looks like all the way to the end, completely and totally. And with it in his mind that he was the one who was higher than everyone else, in verse 4, John tells us what Jesus does. Jesus got up from the table took off his outer robe and tied a towel around himself. The robe which Jesus had been wearing was the rabbi's garment. It is the article of clothing which says definitively, in this group, I am the master. Jesus stands up and he takes off that robe, laying it down on the ground. The towel which he picks up and wraps around his waist is the garment that says, in this group, I am the slave. I'm the lowest. And Jesus the Lord stood up in front of all of those disciples and went over and he laid down his divinity and he took up the identity of a slave right in front of them. Can you imagine what it would have felt like to have sat there in your own seat while Jesus stood up and put that towel around his own waist? Verse five, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. He spilled the water from the jar into the basin and one by one he went to those disciples and he kneeled down onto the ground and he began gently and persistently to wash their feet when I imagine what it would be like to sitting at that, to be what it would be like to be sitting at that table, it does something to my heart that literally nothing else does. It's a mixture of gratitude to be the recipient of such kindness, mixed with the stinging regret for not having stood up first, and, and a sort of holy sorrow that my Lord should stoop so low for me. It makes me want to hide when I imagine being close to grace that pure. Does it do that to anybody else? But then also, it makes me want to run into the arms of Jesus for being so generous to me. And here, let me pause on this story for a moment and tell you this, that the Bible makes a declaration that there is not one of us who has ever dared to even imagine how much God loves us actually just as we are right now. That if we tried to dare dream of how important we could possibly be to the divine, that we would always fall short because we matter more than that, just as we are. Just as our feet are dirty and are taken up into his hands, 
And that's what happened in that moment. He washed their feet for them. The Lord became a slave. The master served the students in this demeaning and dirty task of washing away the filth of traveling to this place. Can you imagine it? And I ask you that again because because what God wants is for us each to imagine ourselves there and then to accept that what God has decided to do for us is to love us in just that way. He has. Peter, one of the disciples, he rejects Jesus' attempt to wash his feet strenuously. He says this, Jesus, stop. You can't possibly do this for me. I should be washing your feet. And Jesus says to him, you have no idea what I'm doing right now. You don't. Uh, If you knew... You would say, wash all of me, Jesus says to him. And it makes me think of how often Jesus comes to do something for us in our lives and we say, Jesus, please stop. But we have no idea what we're telling him to stop because what he's doing for us is the very best thing. And that's what's happening here. And then not only does Jesus tell him, if, if, if I don't wash you, you have no part of me, which is a theological statement. And we've talked about the gospel in the past. This is his way of pointing forward to the, the forgiveness that's gonna come because of his blood being spilled. He adds to that theological statement, a very practical statement. And it's a statement that you and I, this morning especially, are invited to receive if we want to be followers of Jesus. And we should want that. I think it's what God wants for us. He wants us to grow as followers of his. He wants to build us up. And as I've said already, we can only do that together. And this is why. Look at the the lesson that Jesus adds to this humiliating act of grace. He says this in verse 15. I have set you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. And that is Jesus' way of saying, what you've just seen is not only effective to cleanse you from sin as a sign of what I'm gonna do on the cross, it's also meant to be an example for you to follow practically. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying this that in order to be my followers, you must love one another in just this way. And so they wouldn't miss the lesson further on in the chapter. He tells them what we've seen already today in verse 34, that you must love one another just as I have loved you. This is how you will be followers of mine. So let's dwell for a few more moments on this scene and ask the question, what do we learn about Jesus' way of love from what we've seen? And that's, that's what I mean to do, is to set before you the quality of love in Jesus' way so that every one of us has before us, as plain as day, an example of what it would look like to be a follower of Jesus who loves the others around us in the way that Jesus loved his own disciples. I've got four qualities, and what we're going to discover in these months ahead is that all four of them are pertinent not only to loving one another, but all of the other ways the New Testament tells us we're supposed to be with one another. Here's the first. Jesus' way of love is action-oriented. It's not a naturally occurring affection or a feeling that Jesus is telling the disciples to have for one another. If our discipleship with other people in the community of faith, in the church, came down to how we feel about them, God help us. Amen, yes or no? Have you ever been desperately annoyed by the Christians around you? Yes? If you haven't, you've not stayed around them long enough. Listen, this is true for all of us. I will bother you. You will bother me. We will bother each other. In the community of faith, often our feelings will be very bad guides for what we should do. But love, the love that Jesus teaches, we're responsible for, is not a feeling, first of all, it's an act. And it's action-oriented. It's fundamental because we'll have a mix of feelings toward the people that we're called to love, our spouses, our children and our friends, 
the people in the groups that we're a part of in our church and the people we meet with here each week. We know that the command to love from Jesus is a command to action because here it comes down to washing people's feet and that's not a feeling, it's an act. And we know also that John, who was at that table that night, must have learned this first lesson about the quality of love because when he wrote his first letter in the New Testament, 1 John 3.18 reads like this, Little children, let us love, not in word or speech, but in truth and action. And that's his way of saying, to love one another like Jesus loved means to do things for others and not just say things or feel things for others. Love is more than words. Anybody know that song, More Than Words? I want to sing it. I really do. I love that song. It was in the 80s or the 90s with Nuno Betancourt and that beautiful long hair. I won't sing it. But love is more than something we say or feel. It's something we're called to do, to get up and put on the towel, to pour out water and wash the feet of, of that fellow disciple. That's love. Even though our feelings would make us want to do anything but this. And that points us to the second quality of love in Jesus' way. And it's this, that Jesus' way of love is self-denying. Only a person who is willing to deny her feelings would be willing to get up in a moment like this and wash feet. And that's also something that's true about Jesus' quality of love. Most of our actions are self-promoting. Would anyone else admit that in here? It's true about us. That's our natural way of being. We think, what's the best thing for me? And that's what we try to do. What about what it does to other people? Without thinking it through, we'll say, who cares? But love demands that we care. Love says that what you're responsible for is every time you look at the people around you and your instinct says, I want to get this for me, instead set that aside and say, what if I push down my feelings and, and do something instead for them? Love denies oneself and takes up the towel. The master becomes the slave even though he has God's own divine right to be the master. I think that's why John tells us Jesus is thinking that God had put all things into his hand. He had the right to say, get up and wash my feet. I'm in charge, but he does the opposite. And love does that. It denies one's self. And listen, you can do this with your friends and your spouse and your children. Some of you have children who require of you all the time to deny yourself. And it's really hard, but that's what love does. And Jesus told the disciples they should expect this. Look at Matthew 16, 24. Jesus said this, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. That was Jesus' way of warning all of these people who were very excited because Jesus was popular that what it would mean if they were going to actually follow after him would be a series of moments in life where they had to say no to their natural instincts. And I want you to understand this. It's true. Anything that you have to say no to in order to follow Jesus is worth saying no to. You're better without it. And Jesus knows that, and you won't. But you have to learn that along the way. And the way you learn that is by choosing to follow Jesus in the way that he loves, which is a self-denying love. Now, there's a third quality which really makes sense of why one would deny oneself, and it's that Jesus' way of love is other-promoting, and this is important. The rationale for denying oneself in Jesus' way is always in order to promote the other. And, and listen now, in a very individualistic culture like the one that we inhabit and the one that is forming us, and by the way, the, the, the more the time goes on, I think one of the more powerfully formative factors of the time we're in is that it keeps telling people to look out for number one. You're the most important person. And all, a lot of our technology is organized to make it easier to be independent and completely self-centered. But love says, I will deny 
me in order to promote you. And the more we do that in the community of faith, the more we have lots of people looking out for us instead of only one person looking out for us. And it's really sensible when you think it through. If everyone's looking after only herself or, or himself, everyone has one person looking out for them. But if we're all looking out for other people rather than ourselves, we have lots of people looking out for us. Do you see it? And this is the way of Jesus. We see it that he washes their feet to do something kind and gracious for them. And that's what love looks like. And, and, and Paul, the apostle, reflecting on Jesus' way, he, he articulated this quality of love in Philippians 2.4 when he wrote this. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. That's his way of saying, love, Jesus' way, puts the other's interests first. And that's how you will be a disciple. You will look at what is good for others and seek their well-being. Now, none of these three are meant to be abstract. It's impossible for them to be abstract, and I hope you can see that all of them require other people. I hope now that you are thinking, listen now, not of how much you wish other people would be like this for you in the community of faith. If no one ever does this for you in the community of faith, I wanna say two things. I'm sorry. It shouldn't be like that. And then secondly, I want you to know that you're a part of the church too, so you should start doing this for others. You should open your eyes and say, how can I be action-oriented and self-denying and other-promoting for someone else around me? How can I do that? Now, the fourth quality of Jesus' love in, in a unique way actually answers from a theological perspective how you can actually do that. And this is the fourth quality of Jesus' way of love. It is that it is divinely enabled. And what I mean to say here is that without God's help, you can't love anybody. You can't love yourself without God's help, and you can't love the people around you without God's help. But what, what Jesus shows us at that table when he gets up and washes the feet is that God has come in person in order to love us so we are able and responsible for loving others. Have you ever heard this expression, God is love? John wrote that. Do you know that Christians believe that Jesus was not just an extraordinary teacher and a wonderful prophet and a lover of others? He was all those things. He was God with us, which means at that table, Jesus is love. And when he told Peter, unless I wash your feet, you have no part of me, one of the things he meant was, unless you let me love you in this way, you'll never be able to love anybody else. And so, listen now. So the first thing for you to be a follower of Jesus is to let him love you. That's it. It's to let him have his way of acting upon you. It's to let him deny himself for you, which he did on the cross. It's to let him promote you by rescuing you from sin and death. He did that. And all you need to do is just gladly receive it. You don't have to do anything else to add to it. Just receive that. That's the thing that you do. And then when you do that, then you are empowered by the one who created every person you'll ever meet to be able to actually love them, what you were created for. And that's the fourth quality of love Jesus' way. It's divinely enabled. God loves you. And because he's loved you so much, you are now completely free and able to love others. In fact, in, in John's first letter, he, he said as much in a simpler and more profound way than I can. In 1 John 4.19, he said, we love because God first loved us. And he meant that in two senses. He meant that, first of all, to say, we're able to love because when God loved us, he freed us from always being trapped in a self-centered circle. And he made it so we can actually go and love the people around us. And then the second way he meant it is in terms of a command that we've received this love and now we're responsible for loving others because we've been loved. And that brings us back to this call 
that is before every one of us as disciples, it is that if we're going to follow Jesus and grow as his followers, and listen, that's what our church exists for. This is my statement to you as, as the pastor of Renaissance Church. We exist as a church to build up disciples who invite and inspire other people to love and serve Jesus together, and we can only do that together. That's what we're for. And in order for us to embrace that and grow in that calling, which is a magnificent calling, we have to be people who love Jesus' way. And now let's see all four of those qualities and think together about what it will mean for us. It will mean for us to be disciples in Jesus' way that we have to be action-oriented with one another. Listen now, not waiting, none of us, to receive something from others, even if no one in this church has ever given you anything. You've been coming here for a long time. I'm sorry, but now it's time for you to say, what can I do for others to be proactive? Not to go on sitting at the table wondering who's gonna get up and wash my feet, but getting up. That's, that's first. And then, to, to do the things for each other that will require us to deny ourselves. That means all of us should be in this room ready to say no to ourselves in order to say yes to another person who God has put in our path as a disciple. It might be your spouse that you're first of all called to do that with. And I know that's hard to do. It's hard to say no to yourself or your family. It might be saying no to your instincts toward your sister or your brother or your parents even. Uh, or the people that you, you are here, your instinct might be to stay clear of that person who seems lonely on Sunday. Maybe it's time for you to deny your instinct and go say hello to them. That's, that's that second quality that our love for one another will have to have. It will have to be other promoting, thirdly. To be disciple, disciples Jesus' way means willing to let the interests of the other people who are here because God put us together in this opera house come before your own interests. To say no to what you are inclined to do on your own and instead think of them and say, what would promote their well-being? Let me go and do that. Every one of you, if you were to look around in this room right now and see the other people around you, these are your opportunities to do it. Imagine, look around for a moment. I can see that only two or three of you have done that. <laughs> look around in your mind then. <laughs> and then lastly, this is why the, this is why the call of Jesus is a a call to freedom and not another task to do. To love Jesus' way, fourthly, means to be divinely enabled to do the thing that God made us to do. You don't have to work up the strength to do this on your own. You just have to say, God, help me do it. Help me love. And when you do that, he's faithful to give you that help. He is. And, and it will look ordinary, by the way, the love. It may have nothing to do with your feelings. And let me tell you, here's the eight ways it's gonna look and these are what we're going to do in these weeks ahead. It's going to mean welcoming one another because the Bible teaches us to do that. But listen to this. This is beautiful. It, our welcome is divinely enabled because we're only responsible for welcoming others in the same way that Christ has welcomed us, and that is unconditionally. It will mean serving one another. And the only way we can serve one another is because God in Christ has come to serve each and every one of us. He has, and now we're responsible for that. It will mean building one another up. And, and listen, God knows you and loves you and in every moment, in this moment right now, is here present in his spirit seeking to build you up because he wants you to grow and he'll call you to build others up too. It will mean admonishing one another. Sometimes we have to say a hard word to the people that God has put us in community with. We need to say, you're being foolish. And Jesus does that for us too. Not to tear up or to push down, but to help. It will mean forgiving one another and praying for one another and carrying one another and bearing with one another. All of those imperatives in the New Testament which are followed by that reflexive pronoun one another 
tell us that only together can we be disciples and all of them remind us that God himself has done this for us and now we're invited through his power to do it for one another. If we do this, what will happen? The promise from Jesus is that everyone will know that we are his followers and, and listen now, then we'll serve the purpose that God had when he gave himself for us as individuals and as a community altogether and that's what I want us to be about as your pastor. Sound good? All right, let's pray together. God, uh, we thank you that you have not left us having to guess at what it would look like to follow you, but rather you've made it extremely plain. Not only in Christ have you shown us by way of example what we're responsible for with one another, but you've also clearly indicated that here is the way that we will be your followers, that we should love one another. I thank you that the New Testament is riddled with very concrete examples of what it looks like to be people who love one another in your name. I ask simply that all of us would be open to how you'll help us grow together in these two months ahead so that we can be more and more of the community that you intend us to be. And then I pray simply that you use Renaissance Church to be the light, the love that you mean us to be in, the, in this area and in the world that you've put us in. We ask for this in Jesus' name.